Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Alexis Grant. Alexis and I have gotten to know each other through our mutual interest in media and our two small but growing media companies. We share thoughts, ideas, and advice back and forth all the time, and I'm excited to finally record one of our conversations. Alexis founded a blog management company that was acquired by The Penny Hoarder, which then sold and gave her some starting capital for The Right Life, which she ran for a few years before selling that business too. Now she's founded They Got Acquired, a media business covering small online business exits with a growing newsletter and data product. We discuss all things teams, products, creating content, and one of my obsessions, the convergence of media and high-end products like data. Please enjoy this wonderful episode with Alexis Grant. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What does the quality of earnings process look like? So typically in the in quality of earnings, the process itself is one of the diligence that's going to happen most likely in the, in the early stage of the full due diligence of the acquisition. And the goal is here is to be able to solidify the earning profile of the company. And we'd like to sequence it into a two-phase approach. So phase one is where we put some certainties around the revenue, the adjustments and adjusted EBITDA of the business. And it's more important in this, this lower to lower middle market space because just the financial statements of the smaller companies are normally not audited. And it comes with a, you know, quite a bit of discretionary personal expenses and things of that, that nature that needs to be adjusted for. And so the idea with phase one is that we come to a, a good understanding about the earning profile of this business and all the necessary adjustments. Then whether is the valuation that is set out on the, the letter of intent on the acquisition makes sense. Once you get to that that point, that allows the, the conclusion of the phase one allows the buyer to make some decisions whether this is still a viable deal. And once you get past that point, then we move to phase two. And phase two, we can think of it as largely a confirmatory diligence where we do procedures to verify that the revenue is real. We can substantiate that with cash, you know, uh, the bank deposits in the bank accounts, do a payroll reconciliation that you can reconcile back to the, the payroll earnings report and, and agree back to your tax returns. The type of procedures that we think is is crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And at the conclusion of phase two, what we produce is a full quality of earnings report that details out our findings, our observations, a full package that can be distributed to the bank, to the investors to review. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. It's funny how many times we've talked. We've never actually discussed some of your earlier startups and jobs and, and work like the Penny Hoarder and the some of the other businesses you've been a part of. Um, do you want to start there? Because 
I'm sure. personally curious. I feel like we haven't, I feel bad we haven't talked about it before because it's it's really interesting and we haven't dived into it. Uh, I'd love to start there. Yeah, well, I started my career in journalism and I worked at US News and the Houston Chronicle for a few years, which I really loved. Like I loved being a reporter and I thought I would never, ever give it up. It's like an excuse to go to all the interesting events and stick your nose where it might not otherwise belong and ask questions. And I just loved it. It was fun. And then I I left my Houston Chronicle job to travel for a while. I went backpacking on my own through West Africa and, and Madagascar, a bunch of French speaking Africa. And then when I came home, I was looking for a job and I wanted to end up back in DC where I had spent a couple of years previously and ended up getting a job at US News and World Report. But I only stayed there for a year. I was covering careers. So I got to cover the jobs report, which was really fun and learn about that. But what I realized during that time is that I had a lot of opportunities for my what had become my side business. So what, when I came from, from traveling, I was living with my parents for a while. And when I was looking for a job, I started taking on clients for social media and online work. And I had to put that to the side when I took the job at US News. And like pretty soon into my work at US News, I started to realize like I was getting more inquiries on clients and I was working a lot. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a partner at that time. So I was working my regular job. And then on the weekends, I was doing everything else. And I ended up deciding to leave and that job and pursue the business full time. So that was the first time I really got into running my own business full time. This was in like 2010. And I was also experimenting with ebooks at that time, which kind of ties into my career now. And just started realizing that, wow, I could create something without permission from anybody else, put it on the internet and people would buy it. And I just thought that was so cool, especially as a writer, I got to write and just sell whatever I wanted. So I eventually, I I morphed what was started out as a freelance business into a small content agency. And our specialty was running blogs for businesses. So this was from like 2010 to 2015, when content marketing was sort of starting to get big. And a lot of people wanted to have content to grow their sites, but they didn't know how to do it. So we would do it for them. So that was, that was the business that became my first sale. It was purchased by a company called the Penny Hoarder. And that's a personal finance media company. They bought us in an aqua hire. So what happened was myself and several members of my team, we went in-house there to grow out the content operation there. So I was the second employee there and the founder had, was already like on a roll. He'd done a great job with the company and, and he had actually a year and a half before he bought my company, we had started working together because he was one of our clients at the agency. So when he bought my company, we had already been creating the content for the penny hoarder for a while and knew that we worked together really well. So I stayed there for a bunch of years and helped grow out the content operation there. And I left in 2019. And um, I picked up a side project called The Right Life, which is something I had launched like years before when I was running the agency kind of as like a fun passion project, but also as a way to apply the systems that we were using for our clients to our own asset. So I I noticed like early on, like, oh, we're doing all this work to grow the audiences of these other companies' blogs. And if they leave us, we we only got paid for that month that they, they paid us for. Like, what if we had our own asset where we apply these same systems and, and strategies to, and, and then we get to keep that asset over time? So we launched it in 2013, I think it was. And I ended up selling that in 2021. So when I left, when I left the penny hoarder, I 
took a year to kind of play around with it. I was, I was figuring out if I wanted to run the site full time again, if I wanted to like get back into it. Because while I was at the Penny Hoarder, I really didn't spend much time on it. It was very much a side project because I was busy with the job and life. What I realized was it felt like, like I wanted a new project. It felt like something I had done in a previous life and it wasn't exciting to me anymore. So I ended up selling that website, which kind of cleared my plate so I could start. They got acquired. So did you sell it on MicroQuire, I think, right? No, I sold it directly. I, I had a I had a bunch of people who would ask me over the years if they could buy it. So I sort of had a pool of people who I knew were interested, but I actually ended up selling it to someone who wasn't even in that pool. Like they just through word of mouth, when I decided to sell, I had a few people who were interested in, I ran a bidding process. So I, d- I didn't need like a, a marketplace or a broker or anything. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so why do you think that they got acquired? was a more interesting business for you to run than, than that business that you just sold. The first reason is the topic. I mean, freelance, the right life was about how to make money, how to make a living as, as a writer. And I just, I had, I started my career out as a writer and I still am a writer at heart, but I really am much more on the business side now. And I just felt like freelance writing was who I was like a decade earlier. So in terms of the topic, when you think about M&A and just how do you sell a small business? To me, that, that had a lot more to learn there and that made it more interesting to me. I kind of knew the pain points because I'd been through two small acquisitions myself. So I knew what like the problems were for people in that position. And I felt like I could address that pain point. Yeah. What problems did you run into at both the, at the Penny Hoarder and Right Life? I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So that, that was the biggest one. And I didn't know how to find someone to help me. And I think as a lot of business, as a business owner, a lot of us, we have our heads down running the business and we're figuring out how to grow that business. And then when it comes time to sell it, it's a totally new thing to learn. It's it kind of reminds me of like, when you get married, you, you hopefully only go through that once and you have to figure out who all the vendors are and what, are, what all the venues are and all those things. And you just use that information once and then you move on with your life. <laughs> I felt like there was a big uh, learning curve for figuring out how to sell a business. And I didn't really know where to go for information about how to do it. And the second piece, which is something we're, we're also directly applying at They Got Acquired is, I mean, I literally was trying to find comps by hand across the internet by reading articles and stuff to figure out, you know, how much should these companies be worth? And I wish there was a place where I could have just said, hey, I want to look at businesses that are in this industry of this size and how much they sold for. And so that's one thing that we're doing at They Got Acquired. Yeah, that's a really interesting piece that we talk about a lot is the data side of they got acquired. We were just talking about GF data getting acquired too and how interesting of a business that is and in, in, in like a in a very similar way as they got acquired. So what is they got acquired? Can you kind of break down the business, what it does, and then let's dive into the data piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, we're a media company on the front end, but I'm hoping that years from now, I'll be able to say it's a data company instead. We tell the stories of founders who have sold their businesses and how they did it. And on the back end, we're collecting data about all these acquisitions. So we're covering small market M&A and the deal size has to be between 100,000 and 50 million. But most of the deals we're covering are six or seven, maybe low eight figures. And yeah, so our goal is to really help entrepreneurs sell, sell their company. And some of those folks, I think it's mostly useful to first time sellers who really don't know where to find the help that they need or how to figure out what they're doing to maximize the value of their business. But my hope is that it will also be a really 
helpful for people who are going through a sale the second, third, or fourth time if they want to get data around acquisitions that might look like theirs. And, and also helpful for people like brokers and lawyers um, and any support professionals who work in the space. Yeah, it's funny thinking about the different audiences you could have that aren't the specific target one that you have in mind. Like there's there's all these peripheral folks who are interested in that information, but maybe from the get-go, you wouldn't have thought would be interested in that stuff until you start seeing them pop up in your newsletter. What have been some of the most interesting, like different groups of folks who have taken an interest in this type of data? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the support professionals might end up being a big part of our target demographic over time. Because if you think of a founder, you only sell a business once, or maybe you sell a few businesses if you're lucky in your lifetime. But someone who works in the space and is helping entrepreneurs either buy or sell, they go through lots of transactions. And so they might need access to our data more regularly, even than a founder would. So even though the idea originated around like helping founders, I think actually it might be more useful and a better way for us to monetize long-term to make sure that we're also meeting the needs of the of other people. Yeah, certainly. There's a the two folks I was mentioning who were customers of GF Data, and I, I assume, I think they still are, they invest in small businesses. So there's probably a lot of folks who maybe aren't business owners, but own multiple businesses or are search fund investors. Like we have a lot of search fund investors on this podcast who would probably be interested in that kind of data for the primary, maybe not for like the exit acquisition because you're hoping to sell for a much larger amount than you know, maybe like 80 to 100 million. But for that initial buy of the you know, any enterprise value between like five and, you know, 30, 40 million dollars, like that's, that's gonna be really interesting data. So there's, there's a whole bunch of different audiences you could think of for this type of information. Yeah. And I, I think I have more to learn about what, what the needs of those different groups are. And so what my goal is here is we're starting by meeting the needs of entrepreneurs. And, and I'm really curious to see as we start to put some paid products out, who buys them. And I'm hoping that'll give us some more hints about which directions to go in in the future. Yeah, that would be awesome. And this is all bootstrapped. You've bootstrapped this business and you have a team of freelancers. I don't believe you have any full-time employees yet. Can you talk about the team makeup and kind of which, how each how you've broken up each role amongst your team and, and what that looks like for you on a daily basis too? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I am bootstrapping, which has been more of an adjustment than I thought it would because I pretty, I've only worked for bootstrap brands. But the last, when I was at the Penny Hoarder, which is a fast growth it was a bootstrap brand, but it had a lot of resources. So I had a team of like 60 content creators and, you know, plenty of resources. And it's, it's so different now starting from zero and being bootstrapped. And I'm putting some of the money from my previous sale into this company. So that that's helpful because we're, we're not yet paying for our expenses. We will be hopefully soon, but we're not there yet. So it's an investment on my part. So yeah, we have a team of about 10 freelancers. And right now, what that looks like is we have an operations coordinator who does a, lo- a little bit of everything and just helping us make sure things move smoothly. Most of those folks are content creators. So we have a podcast producer who helped us with the first season of the podcast, which we just completed. And it, we, had, we did a narrative style podcast, which requires a lot more energy and time and effort than a pure Q&A. So that that's a bigger position than it might sound like <laughs> if you think about someone who's just editing a Q&A. And then we have a bunch of reporters and an editor and a designer. 
so I'm hoping that eventually we can hire some other part-time folks to help on things like growth marketing, maybe more on the business side. But at the moment, I'm having to be really thoughtful about who I bring on and what, like, what pieces I keep for myself versus what I hire people to do. Yeah, that's the kind of next question I had or was off the top of my head was how do you determine what you're going to work on, especially considering we've we've talked at length about not being able to work a full 40 hours or like like a founder might work 60 or 70 or 80 hours on their business. You can't do that. So you have to be very selective about what what type, you know, what tasks you work on versus what you hand off to other folks. Like, how do you make those decisions on what yeah, you work on versus what others? That's been my biggest challenge for sure this time around. Because when I was younger and I used to start businesses, I just, yeah, I just work all the time because it's fun. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so I just wanted to be working on it. And now I have a family and I also don't want my entire life to be around work. So I, I've been tracking my time. I'm working between 25 and 30 hours a week, which is probably where I'd like to be, but also doesn't feel like enough at this early stage in the business when there's so much to set up. So I'm definitely still doing some things that I would like to hand off, but I need to get our revenue up before I can do that more. So for example, like, and you asked, how do I think about what I keep? I mean, one easy thing that I, that I don't really ever do is, is writing. It's not easy to do, but it's easy for me to delegate because there are lots of people who can do that. And it's hard to find the right people. And I do spend a lot of time trying to find the right reporters and writers for the job. But once I have good people on board, they, they, they can do the writing and that frees, that frees up a lot of time. If, if as a founder of a content company, you're not doing any of the writing. I do do some of the editing. I probably do 60 or 70% of the editing right now. I have an editor who works some hours for us each month. I'd like to, that's a piece that I would like to, like it's the next, in my brain, it's the most, it's easiest to hand off is to have someone else do the editing, but I just need to have the funds to do it. And so that that's like the hardest part, I think about going from a well-resourced company to starting from zero and you're bootstrapping is I can see the path forward, but I'm having to be make compromises about what gets done when. And I feel like when you have when you're on like a VC backed startup or a well resourced startup, you can move forward on everything at once. And I don't feel like I can do that right now. It's like I can move one train forward, but then the other one doesn't move until you know I get over to it or I have someone focus on it. So it, it feels like it's it's never moving quite as fast as I would like, even though I hope from the outside it looks like it's moving. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a focus on within just the tasks that you handle yourself? Do you try to focus on revenue generating tasks over kind of operations, content related tasks? I think eventually I will be able to, but in the early days, I'm still figuring out what everything is. So like, if you think about starting a content brand from scratch, and this was like a really rude awakening for me to, when I, to start something new again and be like, oh yeah, I have to figure out what does the content even look like? What is, what's in it? How long is it? What do we include? What's important? And being really in the weeds on that so that I can give guidance to people who come on board to help with it. So I've been in the weeds while we're creating the first iterations of a lot of things so that I can help to set our own style. Is there some, you know, thinking in your head about like, or some like an equation or something you're running where you're trying to balance the revenue generating tasks that you work on versus like stuff that's not getting rid not making any money and just it's like running the business. Yeah. I think of it more as like, what can only I do? And admittedly right now I'm still doing things that I could delegate, 
but I, I try to weigh it towards like, what could only I do? And to me that those things are finding the right people, sales for our advertising. I mean, eventually I could give that to someone else, but to be honest, it's had, that hasn't been a hard piece for us. So I'm just keeping it under, for, under me for now. What else? Really just like the guidance, guiding the content strategy. So yeah, I think about like, what, what do I feel like needs my touch right now with the hope of being able to delegate more as we grow? What do you think is that next thing that you can delegate? Is it editing? It sounds like it was editing for a little bit. Yeah, that would be an easy one. Although it's hard to find, it's hard to find editors with the expertise that we want. And I need to train that person and feel really good about handing everything to them. But that to me, that's the, and the reason why it feels like an obvious one is because it takes up so much time. It takes up time and it takes up brain space. And I find it challenging to go between thinking about like high level, how do I move the business forward? And like, how are we making money? And how is that going? And then when I have to switch gears and work on editing, it's like very nitpicky. And quite frankly, I'm not even, I don't feel like I'm as good at it as I was years ago because I'm not, it's not my main thing. Like I, the editor I work with is way better than I am. She's, she does that all day, every day. And she, she catches everything. But like, I find it hard to context switch between those two things. Like one is like more big picture, putting the pieces in place so everyone can do their jobs, making sure the business runs smoothly. And then to switch over to editing and like just thinking about the details of like, did this person start the story the way we want it started? Are all the details in here that we want? Fact checking, like, did they pull that quote correctly? If I'm working with like someone new who I just hired, like all that little detail-y stuff, I, I try to do that. I, I get up early a lot of days. And so I can get like an hour of work in before my, the rest of my family gets up. And I try to do the editing in that hour because I, I'm much better in the morning and I finally can focus because it's really hard for me after I look at my to-do list of like all the business things to then spend 45 minutes editing a piece. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I feel like running a business is just death by context switching. And <laughs> your goal over time is to do less switching and like mm-hmm. eventually having other people do that switching for you or just only focusing on that. Yeah, definitely. But editing is also, it is one of my core competencies. Like I'm pretty good at it and it's in my background and it makes a big difference for the business and it's expensive to hire an ed- a good editor. So from that perspective, I feel like it's, that's why I've chosen to outsource some of the other things and keep that until I can afford it. Yeah. The editors are expensive. The editor we use is on the same like expensive range, but he's awesome. And his, his like, he has a full-time role with the wall street journal. So he can't like spend like a full time with us, but like the 20 hours or 10 hours or five hours we get with him on a weekly basis is like worth its weight in gold. Like I've, I found that you get what you pay for with a lot of good freelancers who have done this for a long time and are much better. Like, like for example, with the, with the illustrating of like, taking our content from like a, a word document file to a like finished pdf that we can send to a printer i initially tried to do it myself and then quickly realized that there are people who are very very good at this who could do it much much faster and much much better and it's better just to go pay them and figure it like help, let them take their expertise and help you yeah yeah i miss i am missing having full-time employees i i don't i don't aspire to grow a huge business that has, I mean, I want to grow a big business revenue wise and, and impact wise, but not employee with a lot of employees, but I would like to have a couple of full-time employees. So I'm hoping that we can get there in the next couple of years. Who do you think is your first full-time hire going to be? A writer. And I already know who she is, <laughs> but 
but I got to get to a point where I could bring her on. I would love to hire some of the writers that I've already trained for other ventures, just because I know that we work well together. We won't waste any time in terms of getting started and it, it will be a good fit. And there's just so much that I could, it would be easier for me to manage a writer full time than at least. So I still would want to have other freelance reporters because I believe in it's important to have a diversity of like perspective and, in reporting. So we want to have different bylines on the site. So I wouldn't get rid of that, but there's a lot of other things that need to be written. And, and there's even, I think some light editing that a writer could help with if, if they could come in. Yeah. So what additional products or content would a full-time writer be able to help you more with or help you start that you're not able to do today? Well, just writing more pieces for the website. We are, we right now are publishing three posts a week and usually two of them are stories about entrepreneurs who have sold a business. And one of them is what I call like a resource post. So it just explains something that has to do with the process of selling. So like we have a post about mistakes you don't want to make in your LOI, in your letter of intent, or even like, what is EBITDA? Like explaining that for people so they understand how that fits into like selling your business. And then even, uh, so we, we've, we've just gone through, we just tried some paid advertising where we put ads in other newsletters and like writing the copy for that. There's, and we're starting to come out with our first reports that are going to be paid products that people can buy. And we need to write the landing pages for that. And then we also do newsletters twice a week and that has to be written too. So there's just a lot of, there's a lot of writing related tasks. There's even some, I love for us to repurpose more of the content that we've already created. We have some really solid content already, but we could do, for example, like I have an idea in our queue that's, you know, do a post that rounds up the acquisitions on companies that have to do with podcasts. And that's an easy one. We've already done all the research and we have stories on different companies on the site, but just bring it all into one post. So that can be its new, a new post. Stuff like that, just like taking stuff we've already done and making it go a lot farther. Is the team that's doing all the research for the database, is that a separate team than the writing team for the newsletter? So I have one researcher who's not, doesn't have a background in journalism or writing, but her strength is like curation and online research. So she's doing a lot of the initial research to get, get each company into our database. But then beyond that, we reach out to each team and we are each company or the founder and try to get information about the deal. Cause they're, they're pretty much all private deals. Like if you, there might be, I mean, they're off there almost always is information on the internet that we can find about it. Either another outlet wrote about it, or there's a press release, or they wrote about it on a blog, or there's a podcast interview. Like you can piece together all these different sources of information, but there's no like FOIA request they can make to get the information or like database, like no one else has collected this information. It doesn't exist in someone else's database, you know? So you have to go directly to the source and ask them for the data themselves. So we have a reporter who writes each of those stories and through those stories, they end up collecting more data that the researcher didn't find that we can then add into the database. So it's very, it's very manual. Another common topic of discussion for us is the combination of the two sides of the business with media and your data product. So how do you make sure that the two, you talked about it just a little bit there, but like how do the two, how do you make sure that the two are interacting with each other and the media side is marketing the, the data product and data is going to media and that information is being exchanged back and forth? Well, we're going to do a free product first, which is uh, kind of like a sampling of what we collect. And it's 21 companies that have sold in 2021. 
four, six, or seven figures. And they're across industries. So just to give you an idea. And what you get with that is it's a PDF, basically a, a, a slide deck that has the stories behind all the acquisitions, and like how they found their buyer, all the metrics we have. And then you also get a spreadsheet along with it with all the numbers in it. And so this is all comes from our database. We're basically using the database we put together and pulling out of that database to create the products. So it's a direct correlation, like anything, the database is the source of truth for us, but we're using that to create other things. But my goal is like long-term, I would like to have a way for our audience to access the database themselves. Like they can sign in, they can use a login through a subscription perhaps, and, and be able to pull whatever, whatever data they want. But it's going to take us a while for us, for us to build it. So while we're building it, we're pulling out slices. Like the second slice we're going to do is content companies. So we have one that's almost ready. That's going to be about 20 content companies that have sold in the last few years for six, seven, or eight figures. And so, yeah, our goal is to get some of these out and see how people respond to them. Because even though I think we've found, I would say in terms of like our, our content is resonating with people. I feel like we found con- um, product market fit for for content, if that's the thing, but we haven't, we're, we're just now starting to try these paid products. And I don't even know yet if people are going to buy them. I hope they will. And if they don't, I feel confident there's other ways to monetize this business. Like we're also doing sponsorships, for example, but we're still, we're still in like the early stages of experimenting and see if it's going to work. And you're building the database in Airtable, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And so when you think of like the like the user interface over time where folks can log in, is there some plugin with Airtable that you're able to get? There is actually, because I, I originally, when I first started this, I was thinking this being able to directly access the database would be a long ways off because we'd have to build a UX and it'd have to look pretty. And But no, there's no code tools that you can just plop right in the top of Airtable and let people look through your Airtable database on their own. So I actually think that part will be way simpler than I originally envisioned, but it still will take us a while to collect all the information. One of the most interesting things that I've observed with media businesses that you have too, and we've talked about before is when media businesses have, they monetize the content itself in some way through ads or paid subscriptions or both or something else. But then they also have this other product down the funnel that they're selling, whether it's software, data, real estate, something else. Flying Magazine with real estate is kind of a fun example I've enjoyed studying. You shared like a few examples of companies that are that are selling some other product that you find really interesting as a business model and some of the advantages of having a media business if you already sell that high-end dollar, high-dollar value product. Yeah. I think the reason this is interesting to me is because having come from the content side, it's always easier for me to think about the content first. Like I know the content has to be quite high quality. So people actually want it, but then how do you make money off of that? And I think a lot of content creators that don't think about that in the beginning end up in this like conundrum of like, how do I make money for my content, for my content? And like you said, one way to do that is by selling direct access to the content. So like maybe it's a subscription or something, or you could layer on a, I mean, I think it's cool. Like one of my kind of long-term dreams, I don't know if I'll ever do this, is but to layer on like a SaaS uh, onto a content company because it's really simple and it's something that you can get paid for again and again over time. I mean, we're sort of going to do this at They Got Acquired because we we our, our plan is to let people access the database through some sort of subscription. But what's cool about that is it's not a product that's totally separate from the content creation process. Like we're we're reporting and we're creating media 
And at the same time, that same media can be used in the database for the paid product. And so it's almost like killing two birds with one stone, like you get a lot more value out of it. So that was one thing I thought about when, when we were first starting is like, how can I build a media business in a smarter way than I've done it before? And to me, that's like a built-in, I mean, if it works, I think it will, a built-in way to monetize. But the hustle is another great example that people will understand because a lot of people know about it, whereby if you, where, where the, the hustle sold to HubSpot because HubSpot wanted them because they had a product they want people to buy and the hustle is the audience. They bring the people that might actually buy it. So it's just cool to see media companies become a really strategic move for product-led companies because they know that if they bring that audience in, they can they can turn a lot of value out of that audience. Yeah, you talked about media companies also are often being a strategic acquisition by someone who could use that audience to sell their product. Have you seen it happen the other way where the media business hears about some product that their audience is using all the time and decides to go buy that company that makes that product? I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I have. I don't know if I can think of an example. I keep trying to convince my husband to do this actually, because my husband, his name is Ben Collins. He runs a, a site and a training courses about Google Sheets. And he, he has a big audience. He has, I think his newsletter list is about maybe 40 or 50,000 people. And they're all really loyal and they're there for his, his, he teaches them how to use Google Sheets. And I keep saying to him, either build or just go buy somebody else's extension or something. He could probably buy an extension. This is like thinking really on the micro level, but if you bought an extension for $10,000 and turn around and sold it to his list, even once, never mind like a subscription fee over time, he could easily make a profit on it. So I think that's a really interesting way. And it's what I love about it is it's simple. Like it's so easy to go after like these huge businesses that are going to change the world. But I think the models that are like simple those are the ones that really interest me. Yeah, that is, that's so interesting because the even if the business that, like your husband's example of going after a, a plugin or extension of some kind, that plugin on its own, it might not be worth that much if someone's just trying to buy just the plugin. But if you have that audience that you know that you can automatically like plug it into a much larger group that you can market to, like suddenly that product is much more valuable to you, but you can still buy it for the face value of that business, which is much, much smaller. Yeah. Well, a lot of the makers have the opposite problem from the content creators. It's like they know how to make a product that's valuable. They don't know how to get people to, to go to it and buy it. So, and like, likewise, a lot of the content creators know how to create great content and create, like build an audience, but they don't know how to create something that people are going to pay for because sometimes people won't pay for content. So I think, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how can you combine those two things and, and whether it's at like a big macro level or, or it's just a two small companies that are merging, I think it's really, the potential there is really interesting. Like I would love to do that myself sometime and maybe they got acquired sometime. We will figure out there'll be some really specific tool that people want to use that we could we could layer on top. Yeah, there's gotta be tools or even like a business brokerage that does online businesses primarily. You could probably go buy. Microquire is probably too big at this point, but there's probably like other like tools and things that people use in acquisitions that you could go acquire and use your audience to help market that. Like there, there has to be like a broader investment strategy like that, that you, could, mm-hmm. that you could go execute one day. No, for sure. I mean, well, I think the broader investment strategy too, even beyond that, and a lot of companies do this, is a lot of content, the smart content companies, is you partner with a much smaller company that offers something like this. 
and if, even if there's like an affiliate relationship, you you earn when you send people to them over time, but you also maybe take a bit of equity in the company because that means that you're 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 not only are you you're helping them grow and you're making money as they grow and they're making money. So it's a win-win, but then you also get a piece of that over time. So it's a way to like magnify your power as a media company, but I think it's really cool. Have you thought about an event strategy at some point? Is that in your future? Or are you just, do you think that that's too far out in the future and data and the newsletter is going to be for the next couple of years, the more upfront focus for you? I would love to do an event, but it's mostly from a selfish perspective. Like I could see bringing a small group of passionate business owners to where I live in West Virginia and, and, you know, hiking during the day and then having these, having some conversations about what we're building because that, that just brings me energy. But I haven't really thought much about how an event strategy would improve the company's bottom line or anything. Like, I think we need a community at some point, but it's just like, there's so many things that we could bite off and it's, we've really got to stay focused. And, and, and also I feel like as, as the year goes on, I don't even like planning out too far ahead because things change and we might see an opportunity that feels better than what's even on our roadmap. So I'd like to really stay open to that. How do you think about competition for other media businesses? I don't, I can't think of any others that are very close to they got acquired in terms of what they do or focus on, but if you, in the media sense for the media industry, like how do you view competition? Do you welcome it? Cause it means that there might be more advertisers interested in that space or does it make you nervous? Cause then maybe those, maybe they start to like encroach in your territory. Like how do you, how do you think about competition? I don't care about competition because I know it can be better. And that's out might sound crazy, but I, I think a lot of people who are want to be like growing, like the biggest business on the planet, they want to snuff out all their competition because they want to be the one. I don't, I don't want to be the one. I don't want to build a billion dollar business. I want to build a business that's big enough and get to serve a lot of people and and serve my family and serve my team. But I believe that I can do that while existing alongside a lot of other people. And so I look at competitors as collaborators, like how can we work together and lift each other up? And even at the stage where we're at now, where it's we're still early, there's still ways to help even competitors that are that are bigger than us. And quite frankly, it's like been really interesting. I have learned a lot about the space since starting the site. And there really aren't, on the media, in the media piece of it, there really aren't that many straight up competitors. I mean, I think every company says this, we don't really directly compete with anybody or different than everybody. But there just aren't that many content sites dedicated to what we're covering, which is, I think, why it's been relatively easy to find advertisers because they're desperate to reach these people. And like, if you look at the information on the internet about how to sell a business, almost all of it comes from someone who has a stake in whether you do it or not. So like they're from brokerages, M&A advisors, financial advisors, and not to say any of it's bad, it might be great advice, but a lot of it is written in a like really stuffy or boring way that's not accessible to readers. And there's just, until now, there really just wasn't and or I haven't found another site that is covers this topic in an accessible voice that's that is truly like an independent voice that's saying like here here are your options and here's how to do it and if you choose we're not going to not make money if you don't choose us kind of thing so I think there's just a lot of and it's also it is a very niche market so that's another thing to think about and I would say it's more niche really than anything that I've ever any market I've ever gone after but 
I also think there's a potential to broaden it. So in some way or another, you could really serve all the owners of online businesses because even if they don't want to sell immediately or or in the next five years, a lot of the things that we're talking about are best practices for building a good business, whether or not you want to sell. Yeah, that's a good point. Is some of that thinking or perspective on competition not being that important, is that is some of that influenced by your time at the Penny Hoarder? Because I imagine there's a lot of competing media sites and blogs that talk about saving money or investing and, and growing your personal wealth or buying a house, that sort of stuff. Like how much of, how much perspective did you gain from the Penny Hoarder in terms of competition? Actually, the, the founder of the Penny Hoarder, who's a great guy, guy, Kyle Taylor, he actually has a very different perspective on competition than I do. <laughs> so we didn't really take that approach at all with the Penny Hoarder. I mean, but he, you know, his ambition and he's achieving that is to be the best, biggest personal finance media brand. So it's, it's, it's a different approach than I think what I'm taking. But I think he would, we, we did agree on like a lot of uh, the finer points where like, don't waste too much of your breath on competition, for example. <laughs> I think like where my perspective on competition comes from also is like necessity. Like I have 25 hours a week to work. I do have a list. I have a spreadsheet of other companies that produce data that's like kind of like ours. So I can try to go through them and learn from them. But to be honest, I haven't even done that that much. I, and I probably should, but it's, it's really a matter of like, if I want to move this brand forward, what's the most important thing I have to do right now? I can't do everything. I can't be on top of everything. So I have to pick and choose like what gets my time. And I feel like even if there's other people out there doing something similar and yes, I may get ideas from them, but I also just want to go out and do it better anyways. And so part of me thinks, and maybe this is a naive way, naive way of thinking, I should just go out and do what I want to do and not even look what everyone else has done because it might influence the way I think about it. And I think over time, that's good. But maybe in this early stages, I'd rather have, I have a clear vision of what I want to do and I don't want what a competitor is doing to, to muddy that. Yeah, how do you take a balanced view of what you want to do with your business versus what feedback you get from customers or vendors of yours or your team? Like, how do you, how do you balance the two? They mostly feel aligned at this point. I mean, what people are asking, if someone asks for something, I want to do it because I want to provide what they need. So we're still like really in a, we value that feedback right now. And, and so far, yeah, it hasn't felt like they're not aligned. What are you most excited for in the next 24 months or so? 24 months seems so far off to me in startup world. It's like, who knows where we'll be by then. I, right now I'm just, I'm focused on getting to this next phase where we, where we know that people are going to buy our paid product. And then I'm most excited about growing the brand because I think there's a lot more we could do around audience growth that we haven't done yet. And I think once we put that time into that piece, it will explode the brand. And hopefully we'll have all the foundational pieces ready so that it can take that. That's going to be awesome. We could chat all day, but I want to make sure we get out on time uh, and get closing questions done. If you could teach any college class you, you wanted, what would you teach? I don't know a fun way of saying this, but I would teach something on like clear communication or like saying what you need in a way that someone else is going to give it to you. <laughs> Because I feel like so many, and not, by, by saying, I more mean writing because I'm much better at writing than, than talking. But I feel like being able to write in a way that is effective, basically, even just through emails is, is really helpful for a career and a life generally. 
yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that need a need a convincing word or two for for sure. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? I had to think really hard about this because and it made me realize like I don't change my mind that often, which probably is not a good thing. But I definitely thought when I was younger that I could outwork, like I could work to solve any problem, like working harder would solve any problem. And I don't believe that anymore. (laughs) I I think I I just see now that like people in life have different circumstances that make it hard to, to do that. And working harder is, is not always the option. It's one way to go, but it's not, it's not always effective and it's not always possible. And I think I just had to figure that out with life experience. Yeah. How does that carry over to your business too? Because you have to be very selective. Of course, we talked about this about what you want, want to work on, but it really forces you to, to work much more smartly than you could if you had full availability for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think parents generally waste much time at work. Um, that's why they're most of the most effective or efficient people that you'll meet. There's no, when you run your own business, there's no such thing as busy work. It's like, you don't, you only do the things that are actually going to move the needle because otherwise you don't get paid. <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like it's, it, it has having fewer hours to work has helped me. And, and that's my choice, by the way, too. Like I want to spend that time with my family and doing other things. So choosing to, to work less does force me to pick better, pick the priorities better. And I feel like I'm always working on that. It's always a work in progress. But like, we're, for example, we're going away. We're about to go away for a month to see my husband's family overseas. And I, I really, this is like really stretching me right now because I, I do not feel comfortable about leaving the business for a month this early on. And, and I'm all about taking long vacations. It's great. I've done it many times before, but I feel like we're so early and we're still putting systems in place and I don't have enough of the right people trained to like just peace out for a month, but we're doing it. And it's in some ways it's really good because it's like, it's a forcing function. And actually I've heard women say this about having a baby, like going on maternity leave is it forces you, like you have a deadline, you have to have things delegated and and in place before then. And I feel like this trip is helping me speed up that process. So Rather than it does still stress me out, but whenever I get stressed out, I'm trying to think about, okay, what's the silver lining here is this is forcing me to really hone in on what's important, what has to be done when I'm gone and make sure that it, that it gets done either by me ahead of time or by someone who I'm, I've, I've taught to do it. Yeah. That's, that's something I think I'd love to get better at too, is forcing, force myself to work on stuff that isn't busy and, and ignoring busy work. That'd be, that's one I definitely could work on. What's the best business you've ever seen? I don't know if I can think of one specific business, but I, what my brain goes to is like the simple businesses that we were talking about earlier. Those are the ones that are really interesting. I can give you an example there. This is a startup and they're still in early stages, but I was talking to this woman the other day and she was, she was demoing it for me. It's for editorial teams who need help with style. And like, if you have a question of like, what's the style you can just, it's, there's a, it's a Slack chatbot basically where you can ask them what the style is and they'll respond so rather than having to like go into ab style book and look it up or sometimes at your company you usually have some things that are a different style than ab style book anyways and rather having to like search through your company's style book you just ask the bot what is the style and when she explained this to me i thought like she didn't have to convince me at all i was like that we don't use slack if we did i would i would use that in a second i was like this is brilliant you don't have to explain like and i think 
I, I'm curious to see how she, what she does with that business and how they're able to grow it. And I don't know if they, how successful they've been, but the idea was she could explain something to me or show me something. And that like the light bulb went off and I went that, that is so simple and so solves a problem of mine. Like I would pay for that in a heartbeat. Those are the things that I get excited by. That's really cool. I so think, is it's, it just I think a... it's called Stylebot. So I should say what it's called before um, if I'm going to talk them up. I think it's called Stylebot. Stylebot.app. That's so cool. So is there some backend database with all these different mm-hmm. styles and formats and it just searches through based on the words you typed in? Yeah, you get to customize or they help you customize it based on your company's style. And is it totally automated at this point? Or is if it's too hard, will someone come in and start replying for the bot? Oh, no, I think it's automated. I, I, I think that the back end, there's still, my understanding was there's still early enough that there's a lot of manual work done on the back end and like to get you set up and stuff. But it's it's a bot that responds every time you ask. <laughs> That's incredibly cool. Yeah. That's so cool. It's And so fast. Like, what a brilliant idea. Yeah, no kidding. Especially since it's all automated, it's just instant. It's better than Google. Yeah. That's a that's interesting. It's one of the first businesses I've heard that for that could replace Google for something like that, where it's accurate really fast and it's all focused on that specific topic. Now, of course, it's not going to replace Google like for everything else, but like for well, that Google, specific. Google can't tell you your awesome. own style though. Like if you have a like for example, at our company, we use AP Style writes out like fifty percent. They write out percent. We, we do 50% with a percentage sign, which a lot of financial media companies do that because it's arguably easier to digest. You know, Google couldn't tell you that, what your style is. So we almost, you have to have it somewhere. It's like in your internal docs. So this is like an extension of that internal document, I guess. That's so cool. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit about your business and all the different media companies you've worked on and studied. I always enjoy our chats. So it's fun to be able to do on live and record it. So thanks for, thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. You're, you're always easy to talk to. So thanks for that. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. 